forever. Dog. Welcome to Public Intellectual. Public Intellectual is a podcast supported by its listeners. Listeners like Katya Metsovskaya, Radha Rodkar, Aaron Hahn, Elizabeth Radlin, and Megan Purvis. Thank you to them and to everyone else who supports this podcast at our Patreon page, which is at patreon.com slash public intellectual. It helps the podcast to continue and also to give everyone enough space and time to find interesting guests and research topics and have these kind of complicated questions and conversations like the one that is about to follow, which is about the Me Too movement and this idea of believing women. I can't help but every time I hear the idea of believe women, either through the hashtag or through some op-ed, I can't help but think of the satanic panic, which as a country, we haven't really dealt with the fact that for about 20 years, we put people in jail for ritualized sexual abuse for forced satanic worship um, based on this idea that there were satanic cults all across America who were raping and murdering children. Most of the accusations that came through the satanic panic were by women, women who had recovered memories through hypnosis or in therapy of ritualized sexual abuse and being forced to cannibalize a newborn baby and all of these other horrifying and terrifying accusations, but of course all of them were false. And only last year, a couple was finally exonerated of the crimes they supposedly committed during the satanic panic of ritualized abuse of children, forcing them to drink blood, etc. after having spent 22 years in prison. So when people say, believe women, I think of this, I think of the history of lynching, and it just doesn't seem like a good argument when we're talking about harassment, rape, abuse. If we want these things to be taken seriously, then we need to discuss them in a serious manner. And we also have to remember our history of when women were believed and atrocities were committed in their name. So, this is going to be a a complicated conversation uh, with Heidi Matthews, a professor of law in Toronto, uh, who has written about this issue repeatedly and and wrote a lovely piece about Kavanaugh and the show trial of of the hearing. And so, just... Everybody, I know that the Me Too stuff is is volatile, and I know that when I do these episodes and have these conversations and write pieces about it, like I get a lot of emails, um, which is fine. You can you can email me, um, but enjoy the conversation and let's talk some of the shit over. <laughs>
I was asked to review the new Rebecca Traster book about women's anger. And in it, she talks about backlash to Me Too, but in a way where she essentially pretends like the only people who have criticism against Me Too are misogynists and the right wing, um, which is a thing that I consistently find in a certain type of feminist literature, this idea that nobody has any complaints about Me Too unless they are just a a woman-hating troll or an incel or something. Um, but I think that there are legitimate complaints about the Me Too movement and how it's um, pursuing its goals, if it in any way knows exactly what its goals are. But um, so that's that's what I wanted to talk to you about in today. <laughs> so hi. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Um, yeah, so uh, have you have you found this as well within the sort of um, the feminist literature, this this idea that there are no legitimate complaints to Me Too, especially not from the left? I feel in a way that the um, basically people who have been launching complaints such as complaints, they are complaints such as myself since um, the beginning of this so-called movement approximately a year ago. Um, have been want to think of us, or at least myself, um, as a sort of uh, crypto MRA sure. <laughs> sympathizer. Yeah, same. Yeah. <laughs> um, or also somebody who is perhaps um, simply unduly sympathetic to the plight of, let's say, defendants, for lack of a better word. Mm -hmm. um, and as a lot, so I teach law for a living and um, and I'm somebody who who has been concerned uh, with things like due process and defendants rights you know for many years from an explicitly left perspective and so coming at it from that angle it's sort of um, particularly worrying that that is the the typical response at least from the the mainstream orthodoxy mm -hmm. but also from a significant, section of people um, who women mainly who perceive themselves as being on the left mm -hmm. um, in some broad sense. Yeah. And it seems, you know, there there's this very sort of disingenuous um, part of leftist media to if they are going to criticize the Me Too movement to find somebody like Daphne Merkin, uh, who wrote a big profile about Woody Allen, her lifelong friend, um, or Katie Royfe, who's just an obvious nightmare of a human being, um, <laughs> rather than uh, somebody who has a well-reasoned or right. coming from a legal angle right. um, to just pretend like you you have to be insane to uh, yeah. to be questioning this. Yeah. And the other, so what? one thing that I've, um, one aspect of that, pushback against the pushback, I guess, is the way in which um, that section of, of feminists on the so-called left will immediately say, we're not interested in the law because um, the only people mm -hmm. that are concerned in the discourse with due process are right-wing or misogynist or some combination of those two mm -hmm. um, folks. And so it's become pretty common sense right now to understand a concern with due process as being necessarily aligned with um, with a misogynist or right-wing political ideology. Right. Which historically, of course, especially within the feminist movement, due process is hugely important. Um, yeah, and it's... Um 
But at the same time, that's also, I think, disingenuous because then there's the angle of, um, you know, people advocating uh, for uh, rape and, and violence against women to be labeled a hate crime, thereby uh, having sort of harsher sentences, or uh, with the incel attacks to declare that terrorism, which, of course, turns it into a whole other thing. Um, and so... It's it's this argument of we want due process to be involved when it benefits us, but when it doesn't benefit us, then then who are you to to ask for due process? Or that's totally right. And like so, due process is one example of the way in which um, legal language has entered the vernacular and gets deployed in different ways. And you're completely right to point out that um, really uh, inconsistent approach. And we see the same thing, interestingly, though, on the actual right. So when I have had pushback quite violently at times from actual misogynists <laughs> who are you know, actual male misogynists, they will say things like, um, for example, with respect to Kavanaugh, you're, you would have to be a crazy feminazi to to think for a moment that Blasey Ford was credible. And of course, the language of credibility is legal language. And so the right has also um, uh, taken hold of this kind of terminology when they find it useful and then and then want to issue it when they don't. And so it's actually happening in both left and right in sort of a fascinating um, way, discursively yeah. fascinating. Um, the the issue of credibility credibility is interesting because of um, how it became a part of uh, the Gomeshi trial and then uh, the Weinstein trial. Mm -hmm. um, I was wondering if we could talk about the Gomeshi trial because it feels like that set up a lot of these things, um, and I feel like the conversation around that trial was so stunted and simplistic mm -hmm. um, that it's kind of led to, uh, well, not that it's a direct result, but I think it's, you know, opened the door for everybody to just sort of have a simplistic viewpoint and feel free to yeah. uh, say it out loud in front of people, which is mysterious to me. But um, <laughs> um, so Gameshi was put on trial for um, assaulting, well, he was put on trial for uh, a limited um, number of uh, infractions or assaults. Mm -hmm. I don't know what the correct language. Um, sexual assaults. Sexual assaults. But there were uh, many more accusations against him. And he was yes. a radio personality celebrity yeah. in Canada yeah. um, who most of the encounters started consensual and then became non-consensual. And so it's that weird sort of area. And he was... Um, acquitted and then he took a deal on something else um you probably have better yeah intel so he was charged with um so the there was a, a trial that involved three complainants two um two of whom remained unnamed and one was um this former actor lucy de couture um uh, and he was charged with a few counts of sexual assault and also with this really interesting charge of um, choking, <laughs> which uh, it, technically the, it's, it's overcoming resistance by choking is the charge. And in order to be found guilty of that, you have to have choked someone for the purpose of facilitating a crime. And so in this case, sexual assault, it's really um, historically fascinating thing if we have time to talk about choking <laughs> i've got all day for choking yeah so 
Um, and he was acquitted. Yeah. And so he was acquitted um, on those charges and then re uh, received a, basically a peace bond with respect to a separate set of charges that the Crown, um, which is what uh, the prosecution service in Canada is represented by the Crown, um, didn't want to pursue to actual trial. Um, and he was acquitted not of the actual. So the, basically the judge didn't get to uh, the question of assessing whether or not the allegations themselves had happened, um, but uh, but actually dispensed with the case at the level of, of precisely this credibility because um, several of those witnesses had, had um, failed to reveal uh, things about their testimony, which would, which would bring uh, their testimony in chief under question let's say um so various instances of that so it was just Im impossible to uh to find to find gameshi um criminally responsible because the burden is of course beyond a reasonable doubt and we didn't have credible witnesses and there was no other physical evidence mm -hmm. we didn't have dna we didn't have um other eyewitness testimony it was a he said she said case and part of the credibility issue hinged on um uh, correspondence that she sent him after the attack um, yeah. in which she sort of flirted with him, right? And so that was one of the reasons why her uh, credibility was called into question um, because in the in the way that she talked to him, one would think that she had enjoyed or consented to or whatever the sexual encounter. Well, so there's a really fine distinction there. So there's... Um with respect to the way that we can use evidence in a court about sexual or sexually tinged evidence. Um, and for her, so there were a few different instances, but one of them was basically um, uh, a complainant uh, who who was not truthful up front um, about the fact that she had actually continued to communicate with Gomeshi after the alleged assault occurred. Mm -hmm. So the thing that put her credibility in question was that she um, lied about the later contact and not the fact that that contact was sexual in nature. Mm -hmm. And that's a pretty important distinction to make. Mm -hmm. um, so how do we start to think about then um, a trial like this? Because at one point the judge admonished um, the one of the accusers, um, which was then sort of brought up in a lot of op-eds as being um, uh, showing, a, you know, bias against women and not taking these complaints seriously. Mm -hmm. um, and yet, if we're if we're if these issues sort of if these trials hinge on the idea of credibility, um, I don't know if the judge was necessarily wrong to admonish um, what was happening and to be kind of exasperated with the situation of being like, what, what do you expect me to do here? Like, this is, the case is what it is and I can't do anything about this person. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think, so from my perspective, uh, legally, this was the right decision to come to. I mean, uh, I don't want to be too speculative about the Crown's uh, motivations for taking this to trial. Um, let's say there is a lot of public pressure <laughs> Um, around this case, and it it was would have it was a pretty given the credibility issues, and there were multiple mm -hmm. involving the, all of the complainants. Um, it would have been a very very difficult case to win, and so um, it may in fact have been a case that should never have actually been brought to trial. 
So the conversation around this trial seems to be replaying in a lot of other trials um, because in the way of like the sort of believe women hashtag. Yeah. So if our credibility is um, is questioned, if, if we're made to look uh, hysterical or like liars or, you know, whatever, um, even if we are sort of <laughs> behaving in ways that, w- that would undermine our own credibility, um, then... I guess the idea is that we should just believe women full stop. And, and so that's the, that's the hashtag now. That's the, the sort of simplified version of how we deal with these accusations mm-hmm. is just we should just believe women without taking into consideration the absolute horrible history of when we have decided to just believe women without any evidence. Like um, they say tannic panic or um, lynchings, yeah. or, you know, et cetera. Um, you know, w- women are neo-Nazis, and they were Nazis, too, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. So let's not, let's not lose our heads. Um, so, yeah, I mean, what's the, what's the alternative um, between, between these two things? Yeah, it's actually interesting because, um, so the Gomeshi trial, to remind people, if, um, especially Americans, if they weren't following at the time, but may have started following after the, his... Um, <laughs> Uh, intervention in the New York Review of Books last month. Oh, yeah. Um, but, um, which is actually an interesting intervention, but I'll leave that aside. The Believe Women hashtag actually seems to have come about af- after the Gameshi trial and was something that many Canadian politicians on the left, right, mm-hmm. um, were uh, sort of pandering as, as an explicitly left position. Um, yeah, I mean, I, the alternative, so I, I really hesitate in my work to, um, to propose alternatives (laughs) or, or, you know, and it's, but it's because especially when, um, for legal academics, well, people often say, you know, well, you know, your critique is great, but like, don't you have a law reform proposal? Um, and I'm much more interested in fleshing out from a theoretical and also historical perspective, like, what actually is wrong with what we're doing now mm-hmm. in, you know, um, in a way that's intelligent and that takes a long form, long range view. And I think part, you know, we're in in the moment that society finds itself in now, the idea that we could jump to an alternative is something that I tend to resist a little bit. But that being said, I mean, I think the, the Believe Women um, hashtag and sentiment is explicitly um, an evidentiary claim. Right. So and Jeannie Suk Gerson has written about this in The New Yorker. Um, but, the, the, you know, the very basic, it's an extremely simple proposition. And the proposition is that if this um, sexual misconduct, as we now call, call these um, events, uh, if if it happened to you as a woman, Jessa, and it happened to my friend, Lisa, or whoever as a woman, then, and, you know, and we all say me too, and then I raise my hand and say me too, then that somehow makes it more likely that it's actually true that it happened to all of us. There's a sense in which that's not completely insane, mm-hmm. but, um, but I actually think the invitation with the hashtag um, is actually... Uh, really explicitly a commitment to two things. One, victimhood as an epistemological perspective, Mm -hmm. um, which is very problematic, as I know that you know and have talked about. Um, And also, um, it's an explicit denial of the need to investigate 
uh, ulterior or alternative um, motives for uh, those individuals who are making that claim. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, so so those are, are two areas that actually um, are things that w- people who are trying to think well and with actually good intentions and good political commitments to this issue need to, I mean, I hate to say call out, <laughs> but, um, but I'll say it in an ironic sort of way. Um, two things that need to be called out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, the, the sort of um, argument, I guess, that people make, at least on social media, is like, well, why would anybody claim to be a victim when they're not? Because mm. it's such a difficult position to put yourself in. It's like, well, except for you get, a, you get a lot. And I think you just have to look at our culture where everybody, including, you know, straight white men are now claiming victimhood. Um, there's a reason why they're doing that. Um, because it gets, you know, we only really pay attention to um, people in that space. Like, for whatever reason, that's what our culture has become is like you claim victimhood in order to get sort of care and attention because... It's late capitalism, blah, blah, blah. But um, but but yeah, and so obviously there, you do get things from being in that space and from claiming that label. Um, but it's strange how there's this strong denial that, that, that that's the case. I think that's absolutely right. Um, there are many reasons um, that one might uh, turn to a victim discourse in order to actually claim, let's be honest, power. You know, there's a will to power here. And I don't, you know, think that that's not a, that, that is a controversial statement somehow, mm-hmm. but you're completely right that that's, um, uh, it's, it's, it should not be. Um, and so uh, in this particular moment, women um, like um, the woman who wrote that really terrible uh, take and babe, babe.net or com or whatever about the Aziz Ansari, which was duly criticized at the time and should still be criticized. She was clearly trying to advance her career mm-hmm. um, on the basis of a really, on the back, as it were, of a bad piece. Um, these women get platforms and they get power and they get to be part of a larger, again, I'll say it semi-ironically, but there is a mob-based mentality here. Mm-hmm. And I think your reference to lynching encapsulates that. And I don't think that's entirely wrong. Um, and the other thing I would say is that if we look historically, so a lot of my work um, deals with narratives of um, German victimization after um, the end of World War II, and I've I've worked on this for years, um, including women now quite elderly who were sexually assaulted and violently raped often by members of the Allied forces, including the Soviets mm-hmm. at the end of the war. Um, and what we see now Uh, that's one historic case, but actually that historic memory of victimhood and trauma is being leveraged by the alt-right in current German society. And that's just one example of ways in which um, those who harm sometimes turn around and want to, the only way to sort of regain power and space and a platform is to say, well, we we were hurt too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, geopolitically, it happens all the time. I mean, you look at... Israel, right? Like, no, absolutely. Yeah. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, femi- I hope feminism is not becoming Israel, but it's some of the same sort of tactics and yeah. arguments of the, you know, if you question and you must be a misogynist and if you question Israel, you must be an anti-Semite. But um, uh, 
I got off track. That's a similar Israel. argument structure, though. I think that's very interesting to point out. Yeah. Um, um, so where if 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 this is a sort of idea of that we have to believe women, we have to protect women. Um, you know, you called the Kavanaugh trial um, a show trial. Mm-hmm. Um, just, uh, I'll let you explain what you meant by that, <laughs> so I don't terribly paraphrase it. No, not at all. Yeah. So. Um, I I, ha- I wrote this piece about um, the Kavanaugh show trial um, and how the hearing, the Blasey Ford hearing, was actually a show trial gone bad. So there's a couple of different parts to that. Um, I think the most simple way we could describe that is, is the idea of a show trial, in other words, is to say that it's a trial designed, a trial or a legalistic process designed explicitly to destroy or limit the political power of a political opponent. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I wanted to do a few things. I wanted one to just be very clear about the fact that that was happening. And so it wasn't simply about, um, uh, uh, you know, we need to hear all allegations of sexual assault. And this is just one example. Like it was, this is a political hit job. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason why it was a show trial gone bad was because it didn't work. (laughs) And it was, and I didn't, I didn't expect it to work on a number of levels. And, and, and and I was right. And I actually think, you know, we'll see in a few days with these elections, whether in fact it actually backfired on, I I think my, you know, speculative, um, thought there is that actually it has. Mm -hmm. And so I want to just be clear, like from my perspective, political theoretical perspective i'm not completely opposed to the idea of a show trial you know i tweeted about this like i i hate kavanaugh as much as the next woman um who who is some kind of a feminist adjacent and you know he's terrible but he's terrible on his judicial record and he's terrible on reproductive rights and he's terrible on terrorism and you know all these things um uh so i would have been you know if i had thought that this strategy would have worked as a short-term intervention in war against the right and, you know, the emergence of fascism or whatever we want to call it, then fine. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, so, but but it was a failure and I think it, it is a failure that's going to have longer-term consequences. Um, and I think this loops us back around kind of nicely to this notion of believe women because believe women, it's it's been exposed now actually as being a certain a certain political and probably economic class of women, which don't encompass the women who support Kavanaugh and vote for for Trump and his um, allies. Yeah, I think the one thing that bothered me the most was how how the Democrats lied about their intentions. Um, Mm -hmm. If you're going to do something like that, just admit that it's a hit. Just admit that it's a political hit, Mm -hmm. that we're going to do anything it takes to stop this person and we're going to, yeah, bring out this thing and... Fuck you. Um, <laughs> because otherwise, to be like, to, to I don't know, the, the, all the conversation that the, the sort of official Democrats put forth on it um, just seemed um, underhanded. And I don't mind. Um, I would just rather everybody just tell the truth. Yeah, which is you know hor- horrifying idea, but uh, but actually, <laughs> like it, it, you know, Democrats are trying to position themselves as, as some sort of moral arbiter. Um, so then, be moral. Say, tell the truth. Stop lying. Just say, look, we think Kavanaugh is really dangerous for these reasons. Um, we're going to do whatever it takes to stop him. But 
instead they let this overshadow a conversation about his actual policies, about the actual decisions that he's made. And now he's just sort of known for this rather than just being an absolute threat um, to civil liberties on multiple levels. Yeah. Yeah. He's now um, a perennial sex pest as yeah. opposed to. Yeah, he's a frat boy, right? Yeah. Yeah. As opposed to being a bad jurist with dangerous politics. So and and I <laughs> would much prefer that the left and feminists on the left, you know, focus on the latter. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I think, I, to be fair, these confirmation hearing um, circuses are, are always lying about what they're doing. And, and actually, the law itself is constantly lying about what it's doing. And so when we had senators on both sides talking about the rule of law and due process, right, again, mm -hmm. they're also actually talking about something else. And yeah. it's a real... This is an important point, though, because it's a real sickness of the way that um, we do um, law in liberalism mm -hmm. that allows that lying to happen, mm -hmm. that lack of transparency to happen. That's an inbuilt characteristic of liberal legalism. Mm -hmm. And that, you're totally right, Jess, is something that the left should be calling out on all fronts. Mm -hmm. And again, the engagement, the the democratic engagement with the show trial that we just saw actually explicitly disables us from building um, like the toolkit and the capacity and the um, political will around actually being more politically transparent mm -hmm. in ways that effectively challenge, you know, neoliberalism, for right. lack of a better word. Yeah. Yeah, and I guess the argument was, well, we would never, if we had an argument based on his actual record, it never would have worked. But this didn't work either. Mm. Um, you know, and I think it was kind of obvious from the beginning that it wasn't going to work. Um, so I would rather have a conversation about, an, you know, what this person's actual reality is rather than trying to, I mean, it almost, yeah, like you said, it kind of like almost makes him seem less dangerous to position him as, as like a groper or like a beer chugging, chugging frat boy than to be there. No, this is a, this, he has an ideology and he's going to wage it um, in, um, in the position of power that we just sort of gave him. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think, uh, uh, you know, and a lot of people were saying, um, you know, in the public discourse, <laughs> You know, there are so many other judges that the Republicans have. Why don't they just let this guy go and bring in another one? Like, why don't they get a lady judge who's also anti-Jewish? <laughs> and yeah. wouldn't that be perfect? <laughs> and actually, I think choosing, you know, the figure of Kavanaugh the way that you've described and, and um, the way that he, uh, quote, lost his temper um, on the Blasey Ford hearing day, mm. uh, those things, you know are are pleasing to a large number of people in a way that having a lady opposed to choice on the bench wouldn't be and mm -hmm. so i think yeah all of that actually sp spoke to kind of his his um his popularity and also his image so he, he's not a war criminal anymore <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah just yeah. a conversation that frankly we should be having yeah um so should we talk about consent laws? I feel like this is sort of like what's what's coming up. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if, if 
I've been reading more and more about arguing for redefining um, rape as anything that doesn't have explicit verbal consent, Mm -hmm. which is obviously unenforceable. Um, I mean, if we already have problems proving that rape happens um, under the definitions that exist now, how unless we tape record absolutely every sexual encounter that we have, like cops with our with their vest uh, uh, cams, um, which I don't know, maybe that's like a whole new that's a whole new porn industry. But um, but <laughs> otherwise, like I don't understand how that how casting, this is supposed to work. Casting couch porn has been ruined for us forever. Yeah. <laughs> We need another one. Um, yeah, so um, you're you're the uh, legal expert. Let's let's talk about uh, sort of consent laws. Okay. Um, I'm just uh, pulling up a photo that I took of a poster that I found on my campus a couple of days ago that um, I took down and tried <laughs> to only because I was trying to figure out where it came from and you know whether or not our um, campus because and I say that because campuses are actually as you know like real driving forcer, forces yeah. rather yeah. in the reevaluation and rearticulation of some of these ideas and mm-hmm. that's been going on again um, really pre me too so this is a part of a longer historical trajectory that involves the sort of sex panic that happened on campuses um, that we've been talking about for the last approximately eight years or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that you've spoken to Laura Kipnis about that. Yeah, specific. And I, yeah. so I think that this is um, part of, it's in Me Too and it's instantiation, particularly in campuses, is, is part of a, a longer um, uh, thread, let's say. And so that being said, so a lot of this um, push to reform law, it's really interesting. It's another area where people on the left will say things like, law is downstream of culture. This is a stock phrase Mm -hmm. that we hear. And that it's actually not, I mean, to to my mind, not at all true in the sense that, you know, we don't just change the way we think and magically law catches up. That Mm -hmm. law is um, a concrete material product of political actors um, pursuing, uh, you know, their versions of of how they think uh, goods and uh, goods and services and punishment in society should be should be apportioned, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not simply that you know all of a sudden law is going to catch up to culture, whatever culture means. It's also a problematic concept. But um, so from my perspective, my theoretical and methodological perspective would say that law and culture are actually co-produced, and so they law is a sort of um, in constant conversation with culture. So just to put that clearly on the table first, and so the. Um, the basic idea, though, would be that if we change the quote-unquote culture around how we think about what counts as so sh- the kind of sex that society should be promoting, mm-hmm. um, and if we do that using uh, a certain kind of discourse about consent, then uh, the law we will we will create. Um, a political will to change the law or at least change the way we think about law. I mean, I think that that's kind of the idea, although these people generally tend to leave the law part off because they don't really understand how, you know, law gets enacted and applied. Mm-hmm. Although there are certainly feminists um, with that training who are committed to changing 
um, to changing consent definitions. And that also is a movement that comes out in part of the campus sex panic stuff and predates Me Too. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, so there's a lot to be said about that. I think when you when you referenced what would be called enthusiastic consent, mm-hmm. um, or so there are different versions. There's in affirmative consent, right. which would be there are different ways of doing that. Um, it might not have to be verbal. It could also be by cues and like nonverbal cues and behavior and taken into account based on the context. Um, but there's there's another school that wants enthusiastic consent. <laughs> Good. <laughs> which, which means to say you can only fuck if you really, really want to, which, you know, <laughs> and that's, uh, you know, I mean, yeah, problematic for for many reasons. But um, yeah, I mean, so for example, this, this, I'm looking at this poster that I, that was actually turns out has not come out of formal um, institutional mechanisms at my university, but is actually produced in January, 2018. So right after, um, right in sort of the hate, the heyday sex panic of Me Too. Um, and this was produced by the National Sexual Violence Resource Center, who explicitly thinks that um, what's important with trials like Weinstein or Gameshi, et cetera, is actually just that they happen, not that they succeed, mm. because it will contribute to this sort of culture shift. Um, also problematic <laughs> from yeah. the perspective of things like civil rights. Yeah. Um, 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 so this poster says many things. One of the things it says is that, and I'm quoting now, consent needs to be clear and enthusiastic. Um, it goes on to say, when drugs and alcohol are involved, can no, sorry, clear consent is not possible. <laughs> so those two statements alone are just not, that is not the law, state of the law anywhere mm. that I know of, yeah. including um, Canada, where I live now, uh, which has some a, a version of the affirmative consent standard, but certainly um, doesn't follow these things. So we actually have this strong discourse, yeah, that wants to change culture, certainly at the level of, um, you know, university age students. Um, and if you object to this, you know, you're a rape apologist. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing is like, you know, I, I wrote a piece about... Um, about me too, mm-hmm. uh, about Chris Hardwick uh, coming back to his job. Um, and immediately people, you know, someone on social media was like, you know, Jessica, there's Jessica Crispin like cozying up to assaulters again. I'm just like, all right, like, I don't, you can't fucking win. Like, you can't just sort of like have a conversation anymore. But um, <laughs> I mean, I remember we when. Can. <laughs> There are some in, ladies out there who can in, still in like talk. a closed room with like with soundproofing where we are right now. Yeah, um, yeah, but you know, I remember a lot of this um, happening in the '90s with the the sort of affirmative consent yeah. uh, conversation, and and then it went away, and now it's back. But um, it seems to be uh, much stronger this time. Um, but yeah, the the sort of idea of. Um, yeah, I mean, why does the college campus, why does that have so much um, um, power at the moment over these conversations? You know, I struggle with that. Um, and I also, uh, I know if I focused on it in our discussion today, but I do worry about edifying the discourse around campuses sure, yeah. <laughs> as being these sites of like danger, because that is 
the discourse that the right on you know rolls out and all of that. So, um, so I'm uncertain about that. I mean, I, I do. I mean, I, except to say simply this: that you know, we all had really formative moments in <laughs> in undergraduate. You know, like we all have those those moments. Like I remember the first time I read Derrida, <laughs> and it means it actually means a lot too. You know, yeah. as when you when your mind is in that space, it means a lot. And you know, and I you know I also organized uh vagina monologues fundraiser but i did it at a strip club <laughs> but yeah. it was still and you know some kind of intervention so i that's my only explanation there but i yeah i mean i don't i do, in other words i don't want to play i don't want to be seen though to be clear to play into this narrative that it's like you know the breeding ground for sjw's and that's really bad it needs to you know i, I don't think that's a helpful way of thinking about it i mean but it, but but also just drawing on the campus sex assault sex panic that predated me too there there is a real way in which um colleges and universities do have troubling jurisdiction over these questions and we don't need to relitigate that on this show but um, yeah yeah right. um yeah i mean it's one of these things where um you know, we we did an episode about Title Nine, mm-hmm. um, and how that's sort of influencing the the way that we think about these. Um, because there, it's not uh, beyond reasonable doubt. It's a it's a much lower bar of of proving something mm-hmm. happened, um, and that's changing now. Luckily, thank you, Betsy DeVos. Yeah, it's weird how she's. Be- <laughs> Um, how how is it changing? Do you are you sort of up on the latest? Yeah, so it seems that a new regulations are coming down at some point soon. But it's um, it's my under. I mean, I would want people to triple check this, but it's my understanding that um, the the directive that had been given to universities and colleges during the Obama administration has been retracted and it's open to colleges and universities to use a different standard of proof. In other words, a standard that would be more exacting than the preponderance of evidence standard, which as we know is a 50% plus one. It's the civil law standard. It's the same standard you would use in like a negligence case. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I, that's, I mean, that's a good thing (laughs) and the left needs to be honest about that like why can't we say why can't those of us on the left say actually you know she might have other reasons as well and whatever but like that that's a good move and it's a move more importantly than that it's a move that was responsive to interjections forceful objections and interjections that were made by feminist law professors who teach criminal law and care about individual rights Mm -hmm. so you know I mean, it's I, not just yeah. some right wing or conservative thing. I, I think that the reason why we're not supporting feminists, I don't know why I'm lumping myself in this with <laughs> at the moment, but the reason why feminists aren't supporting reforms like that is because they're not being upfront about their aims. Like when, you know, the New York Times released their investigation into the Rennell case, um, you know, someone just actually said Title IX should be about removing male abusers of power from the system, not not women, which is an insane thing to say um, out loud to a reporter uh, with your name attached to it, I think. But um, but yeah, but I, I think that that's a lot of the Me Too is, 
you know, the reason why it's focused on these very sort of powerful um, industries like media, government, Hollywood, um, the reason why they're arguing that due process not be taken into consideration, et cetera, is because a lot of it is a power grab. Mm. Um, and if they, you know, advocate for reforms like this, then they're losing uh, the ability to abuse the systems that they are inheriting under under these um, situations. Yeah, I think that's completely correct. <laughs> um, and I and yeah, and it's, so it's this way in which, you know, there are different uh, women can use sexual power that they have in different ways. One would be the Camila Paglia route, yeah. like, you know, um, um, and another would be, well, why don't we just use this, these methods to just destroy men? And so, you know, not to, but there's no room for anything Paglia-esque in the space, which I find very problematic. And else, and also on the, not just from like a civil and political rights perspective, but from the perspective of how we might be changing the way we actually think about sex. And that's also very concerning and should be concerning to those of us on the left. I mean, I walked in here in this Brooklyn studio with like YMCA playing outside. You know what I mean? Like, whereas like there's a, there, you know, there's, there's a risk that sex radicalism whatever we might want to you know fill that category up with is actually being threatened and put under you know not a not insignificant amount of threat by let's be honest a power grab that depends on a certain kind of feminism namely mckinnonite second wave feminism that actually is really sexually conservative yeah i mean now we think of sex radicals as being you know silicon valley polyamorous <laughs> oh god <laughs> god yeah, help so us. we need to fix that yeah. and not just give it away <laughs> yeah um yeah I'm, i went to go see uh, sarah shulman speak um and he, one of the books that she wrote was about a i think it was a 45 year old man and his affair with a 16 year old boy mm. and how it took her 10 years to publish it um and uh because no, uh, you know, no one wanted to touch it, um, and this was during the '90s. But, um, but yeah, like th those sort of relationships are immediately now pathologized, and and the language yes. of that I find so. Yeah, it was like when everyone started talking about how Roy Moore was a pedophile. <laughs> he was a pederast. Like we have the language, yes. we have correct language for Thank this. Thank you so Use much. Use the fucking right word yes. because he's not going after four-year-olds. He's going after teenage yes. girls. Anyway, yes. there's a it whole... makes me so angry. <laughs> There's a book called, I think it's called Sex and the Constitution. It's this great book by this legal scholar whose name now horribly escapes me, but it's got a whole chapter about pederasty and Greek society and <laughs> the way in which actually, um, you know, uh, we've part of the way we think about sex and the law now actually depends upon a really concrete moving away from that sort of thinking about normativity. And mm -hmm. I also think, and that's, you know, not if that doesn't make me pro pedophile, although I've been called that as well. And like the, um, it means we need to like just look at what we're actually talking about and be specific about our categories, as you just said. Um, and so the Asia Argento thing is, oh, was God. a bugbear of mine in this respect as well, because she was being called a pedophile because she had allegedly violated a um, statutory rape provision. Yeah, and he was he was sixteen, right? Yeah. yeah. Um. No, I think he may even have been 17. The point, the point, the point is that 
um, the age of consent in California happens to be 18. This is a completely arbitrary. Actually, it's not arbitrary. It's worse than arbitrary. Mm -hmm. If one looks at the history of age of consent laws, um, we actually find that they've been used uh, uh, to promote ideas of female chastity, white women's chastity, and more recently, actually, to target um, racialized communities. And so it's a really disturbing history um, uh, and, the, and the lack of any nuance um, with respect to that. It's hugely troubling and is a product of Me Too's conservatism. Yeah, I just long for complexity and understanding <laughs> of complexity and forgiveness of it um, rather than the sort of hard and fast rules of this is when you can fuck somebody and this is when you can't fuck somebody yeah. and um, this is uh, what's a good sexual relationship and this is or a healthy sexual relationship because everything has to be understood mm. uh, through the prism of health now mm -hmm. um, and this is an unhealthy sexual relationship and um, yeah it's it's just um you know, my friend Yohana said the other day, she's like, if you want to be heard on this subject, you're going to have to wait to speak for 12 years. <laughs> <laughs> um, which I think actually might be true. But um, <laughs> we're sort of uh, running out of time. Any any final thoughts on, on um, the subject? Yeah, I just, I like your, your reference to, you know, healthiness and this like self-help culture that we find ourselves in. And the one thing I would say there is like, I, and, you know, people aren't going to want to hear this either, but I do think there's a real value in thinking and theorizing bad sex, mm -hmm. right? Like, yeah. because you can have bad sex and there still be nothing wrong with it mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> as such. Yeah. And it actually, you know, does things for us in our lives, whether or not we're like walking down some road towards the like, uh, you know, apex of a healthy sex life or not. The way you get there is by, I don't even want to say making mistakes because we're encouraged to think of a bad sexual experience as having been a mistake and mm -hmm. it might actually just be life yeah you know yeah um. yeah it might actually just be life <laughs> yeah okay thank you thanks so much forever dog this has been a forever dog production executive produced by dog. brett boehm joe cilio and alex ramsey for more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Forever Dog Team and liking our page on Facebook.